Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We were created to work, but the fall made work hard. The redemptive work of Christ brings healing to all aspects of our lives, including work, so that work again becomes productive and meaningful. Teaching team member David McNeely continues the series, What Do You Work For? Your Part in a Larger Story, with this message entitled, The Hero Arrives, Work is Redeemed, which covers Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and chapter 3, verse 23. Thank you for joining us today. We are in a series. This series is on work. Bob Cargo started out this series and he talked about the fact that work is good. Work came from God. In the beginning, God created. He created people in the image as Bob talked about earlier. When when it says that we were created in his image, meaning that we are a reflection of him, we have some of his characteristics, not all of them. It would be cool, but we can't be in all places at all times. God has that. He's got the market on that one. He didn't pass that one on to us, but he did pass on other qualities, other things about him. One of those that he passed on to us is the desire to work. Work is good. We work because God is a worker. So God put that inside of every man and woman to be a part of contributing to the society and the culture at large. Sometimes we get paid for that work. Sometimes we don't get paid for that work. But but I think what he put into the heart of us all is that you and I would contribute to the flourishing of a whole community. God created us in his image. He also put in different skill sets and different desires and different passions and different understandings, different knowledge, different things that he placed within us so that he might build this thing called the earth. He started out in a garden and he gave us all the tools that were necessary in the garden. We were to mine the hidden potential within the garden. But all along, God had in mind there was going to be a city that was to be built. And so in this city would be systems and structures and buildings and services and goods that would be a part because all of that was from him. So in the beginning, work was good. And every day, Adam and Eve would have a forward, upward direction orientation in their work, meaning that they would start right here. They would say, oh, God, what do you want? How do you want me to work today? And a part of what he gave them was to name the animals. That was a part of their work. They were doing it. They were doing it well. They were satisfied with their work. Their identity was not caught up in their work. They weren't competing against one another. They weren't jealous of the other person's skill set. They were operating in complete harmony with one another and in complete harmony with God. Because this was driving the ship, what was going on in here was good and right. And he pointed them outward as well to a whole world. They were benefiting the society at large. They were were benefiting the animal kingdom. They were benefiting the the globe itself. Everything was operating in harmony with one another. And then what happened was last week we talked about the fall. They took the fruit and they ate the fruit. And what happened as a result of that was there was death that came about. This relationship right here was no longer a desire of mankind. We didn't want any longer to be accountable to God and account, uh, working alongside of him. We wanted to be autonomous away from him. And so when they ate, they knew. They knew what God had said. And so they actually ran the other direction trying to hide away from God. And you and I have been in the practice ever since of hiding from God. Sometimes we hide from God in specific sins that we commit. And sometimes we hide from him from specific thoughts that we have, specific deeds that we do, things that we want, things that we don't want. We try to hide from him going in the other direction because it's 
No longer cooperation with him now. We are in active rebellion against him. And when this right here went awry, guess what happened right here? The whole way that we approached work went virtually inward. It was no longer here and here in direction. It was basically focused in this direction right here. So it went away from being upward or Godward and outward in nature. It went into an inward focus, which was a part of what God wanted, but it became almost exclusively this. And so some of the results are this. You and I have a tendency now to define ourselves by our work. We tend to place the value on who we are as people based on what it is that we produce, what kind of goods or services that we provide. And we do it particularly by how successful our company is or our business is or or, or how uh, well-known we are in our particular marketplace. So let's say that you're a teacher. We tend to place a lot of value on how many students rate me as a great teacher. Let's say you're in the medical profession. You tend to place all the value of who you are as a person based on how many bones it is that you fixed. You're in business, you tend to, at the end of the day, place your net worth as your worth. As a parent, placing all of your hope, who you are as a person and how well your kids turn out. See, work turned basically inward. We, we no longer were operating cooperation here. We were no longer operating for the flourishing of the culture at large. We are now exploiting the culture. We're exploiting people. We're abusing people. We're exploiting God's creation, abusing his creation. We are trying to do everything we can to somehow or another satisfy the hurt and the pain that sits right in here. When this is not right, this is awry. And it absolutely affected the way that we approached others in the process, which we just talked about. Work changed everything. Work became hard. There were thorns and thistles that were now produced up out of the ground. And oftentimes our work became meaningless. We saw what it is that we did at the end of the day and said, it's just not going to last. What's the point? God had every right at that moment, every right in the garden to say, I'm just going to let you go to hell. But instead, what he did was he decided to do something about it. He decided to take matters into his own hands. The only one who could fix the problem made a decision to come into our midst, to join in, to step into our reality, to no longer sit from on high. He decided to become one of us and now do what Adam could not do. And so Jesus steps into the picture. And when Jesus came onto the earth, for all the years that God gave him specifically on this earth, before he uh, took him back into, uh, into glory, every moment, every day, not a single second went by in which he was not operating in a manner in which this was always driving the ship. So every day he would say, God, what do you want me to do? Jesus said, I don't do anything outside of what my father tells me to do. This drove it all. And what was going on in here was he came to accomplish his mission. And he did it well. And what he wanted to do was to bring about redemption for the whole of society, not just human souls. That's a part of the equation. He came to fix everything. The image that we talked about was marred. It was distorted. But don't think of it an image like we, you and I would have a mirror. And let's say that something were happening, I would have a mirror here on stage. And, and, and let's say we were to smash it and to break it with something. Don't think of it that all of the pieces fall off and they go to the ground. That's not what happened there. That, where here, there's no reflection. There's nothing that you can see. It's more like tempered glass. 
where everything broke inside of here. It's still here, but it is so difficult to see the reality. It's so difficult to see what was intended. It's so difficult to see what God wants because it's all mixed up. And so what Jesus did is he came and he started to mend this glass. And I don't know how he does this, but he wanted to make it so that the glass was being smoothed over and all the cracks were being erased. And Jesus came down and accomplished his work of redemption. But yet we don't see the full effects of that redemption yet, do we? Because you and I know we live in a world in which things are still broken. People are still injured. You work in the, in the uh, field of education. There's many of you here that do. You work in the field of education, you know what I'm talking about. You know Christ came. You know he redeemed things. You know he set things right. He put them back on a trajectory um, of, of that which God intended. But you also see there are still people in this world who have significant areas of struggle academically. They can't see the words properly on the page. There's something that's not firing correctly in their brains. They've got significant processing issues. And school is hard. You work in the medical field? You know with all of our advancements, and I am so thankful for all of the advancements that have taken place in our world. I love the fact that I have an iPhone. I love the fact that I can hop on a computer and talk to someone in China. I love the fact that I can research some topic based on my computer at home as opposed to having to go down to the library and the whole Dewey Decimal System and remember the old microfiche and film that you had to scroll through forever to get to. I'm so glad we live when I can hop on my computer and research. I'm also glad of many of the things that are available to us today. One of the greatest inventions is a Sea-Doo. Whoever came up with the sea that may be an automatic ticket into heaven. I don't know. <laughs> Sea-Doo's will be in glory. We will be, I will be out there on the Crystal Lake. It's going to be great. Do you know what doctors tell me as a result of Sea-Doo's, though, is that they now see more significant injuries that are taking place as people crash into docks. Technology, good. It's right. It's wonderful. And it also brings about a greater awareness of the broken condition of the world. Jesus redeemed things, but we don't feel all the effects of that quite yet, and that is frustrating for us. So what do we do? What do we do now in the meantime? What do we do now knowing that Christ has come to restore, to renew, to redeem all things? A part of that is our work itself. The very thing that we do, Christ has come to make that right again. He's come to make this the priority. He's come to put this in its proper location. And he's come to benefit all of culture. He's here to do that. He came to do that. He did do that. But we don't see all the effects of it. So what do we do in the meantime? I want to walk us through that here uh, just briefly. Um, and, and I think um, I think you and I will be encouraged uh, when we leave here tonight. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Colossians chapter 1. If you were here only last week, last week was your first week, we made the statement from the stage, I am so sorry if this is the first message that you come to, and especially for those who it was the only message they're going to get to in this whole series, I really apologize. It was so depressing. And we said hope is coming. The good news is coming next week. Here is the good news. This is the foundation for all. And we won't do an exhaustive treatment of this particular passage because we've taught on it at least twice in the last two years. Um, but we do need to dig in deep enough for us to understand the context of how it affects us in work. All right. Colossians chapter 1. Begin reading in verse 15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It says here that he is the image of the invisible God. You and I have been created in God's image, but we know we are a poor reflection of God. We have certain characteristics of him, and it's good. Every human being who is on the planet, whether or not they acknowledge God, they could be an atheist, they could be a Christian, regardless of where they are in their religious and spiritual pilgrimage, every human reflects a portion of God. We're all made in his image. That image is distorted. That is not what it's saying about Jesus right here. See, when you and I look at a picture, we know that that picture is not the reality itself. We know that that's a reflection of the reality. We know that picture was taken at a certain amount of time ago. Could be 10 minutes ago, could be 10 years ago. We know that that is not the reality. It just represents the reality. Jesus is the reality, though. When it says he is the image of the invisible, he is God. He stepped down into our place, into our location, into our space. He came down to where we were, and he made the invisible visible. He's not a picture. He is the reality. He is the image of the invisible, the firstborn over all creation. This term firstborn is used 130 times in the Old Testament, and it is always used in the context of priority. Jesus has the position of priority. He was not created by God. He was not the firstborn in the same way that Dawson, my son, is the firstborn in our family. There was a time in which Dawson came to be. There was never a time in which Jesus came to be. Jesus has always been in existence. There was a time in which he entered the earth as a human, but there was never a time in which he was created. So he's not the firstborn in that sense, and we know that because of the next line that Paul gives us. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus was the one who was creating all things. And when it says all things, there is nothing that Jesus is not over. Jesus sits on his throne in the solitude of himself, and he stands above it all. Jesus is over business. Jesus is over education. Jesus is over nonprofit. Jesus is over the universe. If it is in existence, Jesus is over it because Jesus is the one who created the show. Quick question. Is that true of your work today? Are the values of your company, the values of your work, if someone were to pop in from Mars, they were to come in and to see who you are, who your corporation is, would they see Jesus on the throne? Would they see this dynamic here where he's calling the shots? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I don't fully understand this because I know that he stepped into our place and into our space, and at the same time, it was him who was holding all things together in his hand. 
He didn't create things and then back off and let them kind of just go at will. And then, you know, every now and then he'll kind of tinker a little bit to make a few adjustments here and there. He is the one who is actually keeping them all together in existence. Everything would go haywire if there was no Jesus. 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, this is going to be of great importance here in a few minutes. He is the head of of the body, which is the church. The head is the one who calls the shots. The brain is operating right here. This is where we see. This is where we smell. This is where we hear. This is where we taste. It all is functioning right here. All the data is coming in in this place right here, and this directs everything that we have. Jesus is the one who is calling the shots for his church. Now, this is what's so crucially important for you and I to hear. The reason that you and I need to bank on this, understand this, and embrace this is because Jesus is the one who came down to the earth and he is the one who set out to restore all things. We'll see that here in just a second. And what he calls his church to do is to jump on board with him. He's leading the way. He wants us to partner with him. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, in everything he might have the throne. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is reconciling all things, meaning he is setting right what once went wrong. There's an old television show, one of my favorite shows. It was an old um, sci-fi show called Quantum Leap. And in Quantum Leap, his mission was to set right what once went wrong. Quantum Leap just barred the idea from God. He goes back in time. He bounces around in order to, to make things that, that, that went awry. He, he makes them right. What Jesus is doing is he shows up and he says, I want to set it straight. It's not supposed to be this way. And so I'm going to go on the mission to accomplish this. It is Jesus doing the work. It is not you and I doing the work. It is Jesus with the ingenuity. It is Jesus with the creativity. It is Jesus' power that's going forward. You and I are asked merely to jump on board with him, to join up with him. And then because of his life that he lived, his active obedience, never once faltering, never once giving into temptation, never having a bad thought or motive because of this right here, he now can pass on to us his ability, his power to live a life like that. He does that through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, I'm going to reconcile all things. I want you to partner with me, church. Do you know that's what your work is? Do you know that's what you're called to do in work? Is to partner with God in the redeeming of all things. Bob Cargo has a friend from seminary and um, his, he interviewed his friend. His friend said it this way. He, Bob has said it from this stage before. Um, I can't remember actually if he said it during the first week, um, but he said it before, and I just want to repeat it because it's so worth hearing. His friend said, my purpose in life or my mission in life is to partner with God in the redeeming of nouns. Persons, places, and things, systems, structures. We want to bring redemption to all of those things. And that is my mission. And when I say that is my mission, that is what I have a focus to go after. It starts here. What do you want? You've wired me this way. You've given me this level of gift mix. You've given me this skill set. You've given me this measure of it. Great. I will do what it is that you have asked me to do. 
And it's for the flourishing of the whole community around us, for the whole flourishing of all of the earth. Can I just tell you um, just one struggle for me as a pastor in this? Where I tend to get uh, sidetracked on on a regular basis, and I I wish this wasn't true, um, but it is. Where I tend to get sidetracked is I say, God, I want so desperately to make um, a world of difference. I look at what the disciples did. I saw how God moved in them and through them. It was the Holy Spirit. It was God. It was Jesus doing it, but he was using people. I want to be used in a manner like that. And so I think about the skill set that he's given me. I'm pretty in touch with what it is that I don't do very well, and that list is very long. There's a few things that I do well the way he's wired me. And so I look at these few things and I say, God, I want to do this and I, and I want to have a greater reaching impact and I want to, I want to reach more people and I want, to, I want you to use it and redeem it, et cetera. And, and my problem is, is that oftentimes I am comparing myself to some other pastor whom God has sovereignly, supernaturally gifted to a greater degree than he has gifted me. And I tend to compare myself to that person and think that I just don't have the same level of worth and value in the kingdom. So what God has called me to do is to be a faithful steward right here at Perimeter Church, whom I love. I am so thankful to be here. God has not called me to go down to the Georgia Dome and to speak to 80,000 college students. He's called someone else to do that. Do you struggle in your business world? You struggle in your parenting. You struggle as a teacher. You see what it is that Jesus is doing. He's on the move. He's bringing about redemption for a whole culture. Do you say, God, I want to be a part of that. I want to jump on board with you. Please use me. And you watch somebody else who God has gifted to a greater degree. And do you get sidetracked? Me too. When you and I begin to think of how it is that he has wired us and what it is he has given us to do, um, here's one element that it will take away from us. It will take away this notion that you and I are to be judged and you and I are to be um, uh, valued based on the basis of what it is that we bring in. Dorothy Sayers, who lived several years ago, um, died several years ago, wrote uh, an article entitled, entitled, Why Work? And uh, she says this um, about our thinking about money. This is a little bit lengthy quote. This is the worst thing you should ever do as a communicator. I'm apologizing up front. Just listen. It's worth it. The habit about thinking, I'm sorry, the habit of thinking about work as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think about it instead instead in terms of the work done. To do so would mean taking the attitude of mind we reserve for our unpaid work, our hobbies, our leisure interests, the things we make and do for pleasure, and making that the standard of all of our judgments about things and people. We should ask of an enterprise, not will it pay, but is it good? We should ask of a man, not what does he make, but what is his work worth? We should ask of goods, not can we induce people to buy them, but are they useful things well made of? We should ask of employment, not how much a week, but will it exercise my faculties to the utmost? And shareholders in, let us say, a brewing company would astonish the directorate by arising at a shareholders meeting and demanding to know not merely where the profits go or what dividends are to be paid, not even merely whether the workers' wages are sufficient and the conditions of labor satisfactory, but loudly and with a proper sense of personal responsibility, what goes into the beer? 
Listen to this. Work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is or should be the full expression of the worker's faculties, the thing in which he finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction, and the medium in which he offers himself to God. What is so natural and easy for you and I is to drift towards this idea that money determines what it is that we're worth. And what Dorothy Sayers is saying, what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying, what Jesus came to redeem it so that it's no longer about the dollar sign attached to it. It's about the work itself because God's a worker. And his desire all along was to take us from a garden into a city and to have us build all the way through using various gifts and talents, dispensed in various measures, in various cultures and places, all with the direction upward that says, God, what do you want? It's your kingdom that you're building. It's your earth. We're here to steward it. What do you want? So can you and I stop thinking so much about remuneration and start thinking far more about contribution? What are you contributing to the benefit of people. Now, let me ask you this. What he has called us to do is to partner in this whole aspect of redeeming and restoration. So how is what you are doing bringing about redemption and restoration to a world? I've got a great friend uh, who actually uh, started a business, and that business is um, loaning out money to people who have horrendous credit. And he loans them money, not like, like um, uh, and it's done on many occasions where the interest rates are so high and it makes it virtually impossible for them to pay it back. He loans out money to them who have horrendous credit for various reasons, some choices that they have made. Certainly they're responsible for some of that. He loans them money so that they can purchase cars because they have to have these cars in order to get to their jobs so that they can provide for their families so that they can do the work that God's called them to do. He makes less money. He is bringing about redemption, though, by, by helping people who have fallen down, helping people who are broken, helping people who need something. He meets them where they're at. God gave him the abilities, the faculties, the understanding to know how finances work. I don't get all that stuff. I can barely balance my own budget. He understands this, and he offers it in such a manner that people who need it can access it and begin to work hard. Think of it this way. On the broadest scale, what you and I are called to do is to join God in bringing healing. Wherever there is something that needs healing, God says, I'm going after that, and I want to bring healing, so jump on board with me, and let's go attack it. Two, I think it was two uh, Novembers ago, uh, Dawson and Davis are out playing in the yard. Dawson's the oldest, Davis is um, the third in line. And they're, they're playing, uh, it was right around uh, Thanksgiving. In fact, I think it was right before Thanksgiving. That was the Sunday. Thanksgiving was coming up on Thursday. And so I'm inside being a responsible parent while watching the NFL. My boys are out playing uh, in the yard uh, football. And so Davis comes running inside. And he says, Dad, Dawson is screaming. He's hurt. And so with, with all of the compassion that every father has, I, I got up and went, oh, good Lord. And I begin to walk outside, and I see that Dawson is laying down in the other person's yard all the way over there. And I'm going, dude, get up. He says, I can't get up. And he is screaming to the top of his lungs. And it's just, it's a lot of drama. 
And so I make my way over to where he is and I get much closer to him. I say, son, I'm telling you, get up. Dad, I can't get up. And then it dawns on me, he actually might be hurt. So I look down and, and his leg, the, the, the pants on his leg are, are so tight with his leg. It is because the swelling in his leg has, has gotten so significant he can't even move his, his, his jeans. And I went back to my days in sports and I went, this kid may have just broken a bone. And so without really thinking this through, I pick him up and as I pick him up, his leg just begins to dangle down, hang. And then, without thinking even further, because that's what I do, I grab his, his legs and I start to pull them around my body to hold him. And he just writhes in pain. It, I went, okay, yes, yeah, sorry. So I turn him over. I get his leg braced in the right spot. Take him in, put him in the beanbag, brace his leg, call just a saint of a woman that is in our church. She works with the children's hospital in the emergency room. I called her. I said, I need some help. Will you please come and look at this? She made her way over. She said, we need to get him to the doctor. Got him to the doctor, and when I looked at the x-ray, even I could tell this was a broken bone. It was gnarly. He had stepped into a little pothole in the ground, if you will, of, um, where there's just a little shift in the earth because the houses in the 90s were built in such a manner that the ground just shifts and sinks. And so he had stepped in there and turned, and when he twisted, he snapped his femur. And so looking at that picture, I... I I realized that what those doctors did after that was absolutely special. Nurses, doctors, surgeons, many different people, a whole team of people came around Dawson and they came around me as a dad who was feeling the overwhelming guilt of what I, the way that I had treated him. They, they, they came around and they did something for his leg. And so a doctor on, on uh, two days later after the swelling had gone down, they'd given plenty of, of pain medication, they, he, he made an incision here and an incision here, and he put rods all the way up his leg. And so he made it. He can't fix the bone himself, but he can line the bone up so that the healing process can take place. And I realized that this is what you and I are called to do. We are called as a whole group of people with different skill sets to go attack the world and to bring healing to people who are hurting. So how can you, how can you individually and how can your company help bring about healing for a world that is in a horrendous state? And oftentimes the state that we are in as a people, we do things intentionally by our own volition. We make decisions that only exacerbate the problem. We make matters worse. How can you and I step in in time and space based on the gifts that God has given us, being vertically oriented in our direction of work and say, God, what do you want? How can I heal? You're the one who has to do the healing. How can you and I put the rods in? That's what he has called us to do. He's called us to serve in every way possible, in every way imaginable. We are called to do this. So I don't know, uh, for you personally, I don't know what skill set God has given you individually. I don't know what he will be calling you to um, over the long haul, but I want to give you just a couple of principles here, and then I want to close with a, with a story um, uh, that I think in many ways encapsulates it and summarizes it for us. So, and 
Uh, what are you and I uh, to do now on a macro level? You and I are to approach work from a redemptive and a restorative manner. Now, just this is not an exhaustive list. This is only be just a couple of things to give you. They won't be up on the screen um, at all, but just a couple of things that you and I do now as those who are called to work redemptively and restoratively. You and I are called to work hard. The, the fall made work hard. It made it difficult because everything is in active rebellion against us. Systems are in active rebellion against us. They are fighting back. They are pushing back. It, it, now what God has called you and I to as believers, as those who are called by God, bearing the image, being associated with Jesus, he who is the head, he has called us to actually work and to work hard. Not have our identity wrapped up in work, but to get after it. Why are we to get after it? Because he wants us to bring healing. And you can't play around with that. One of the single greatest pictures that you will give to a people around you is your work ethic. One of the worst pictures that you will give to folks around you who are checking out this whole thing called Christianity is to be a sorry worker. You walk into a company, and it's great, man. You're talking about Jesus and all the things that Jesus does, and you got the gospel in the right order, and you're saying, you know, it's not about the work that we do. It's all about the work that Jesus does, and there's no way to get to God unless you and I are, uh, believe in him by faith. You can get all that stuff right, but if you're going to sit around every day at work and badmouth your boss and not make the phone calls that you need to make and not come in prepared and not show up in meetings that you're supposed to, if you're going to do that, what's the point? Working from a redemptive and a restorative perspective means this, that I want to work, and I want to work in such a manner that it is hard. It is a good day's work. At the end of every day, you ought to be able to say, ah, I'm tired. That was good. The second thing, though, that, that you and I need to do, just practically speaking, is that we should always keep in the backdrop of our mind what it is that Christ has done on our behalf. Always remember that you and I did not deserve to have Christ die for us. He just died for us. Jesus didn't come to the earth because the Father twisted his arm. He came because he was compelled for the glory of the Father and for the benefit of mankind. So when you think about your company, maybe your company is, a, is an organization that maybe it doesn't reflect all of your values. Maybe there are some things about it that you don't particularly care for. Maybe there's some things there that you would alter, that you would change, um, and maybe you get into a mindset like so many of us do that says, my company owes me. And what I would say is, I want to be careful here, but, but I would say, can you and I start from the perspective of what it is that God has done on our behalf, him taking the initiative to move towards us as opposed to us taking the initiative to move towards him. So do that with your work. You take the initiative to work hard, and you take the initiative to benefit your company. Another thing that it does when you and I work restoratively and redemptively, it puts in proper perspective the financial component of it. Here's what I mean. Money will no longer drive us, but we have to understand we need to make money. It sounds great in theory for you to say, I've got this skill set and I've got these gifts and, and, and I want to benefit mankind and so I'm just going to offer my services free of charge to everyone. That's great. If God specifically lays that on your heart, 
And he comes down in physical form to earth to tell you that. You need to make money because if you don't make money, you cannot continue to provide goods and services for the people. You cannot continue to do the work that God has called you to do. So making a profit is important. It's just not the driving factor. I'll I'll skip around on this one because this is an even longer quote, but but listen to what he says. This is uh, from Jeff Van Duzer in in the book called um, Your Business Matters to God. Instead of asking in first instance which choice will maximize my return on investment, we ask, given the core competencies of my organization and the assets under its control, how can I best direct the organization to serve? Which products or services could we produce that would best enable my community to flourish? He goes on to talk about how um, oftentimes it's promoted in in, uh, great uh, economists, um, others in leading corporations will say that the goal is the return on investment. And he says, no, that's only a part of the equation. And listen to how he closes, uh, closes this time out. Under the Genesis model, the employees and customers do not become a means for, uh, uh, for us to uh, ex- exploit and abuse. They become the actual ends of the business. The business is run for their welfare. Profit is not important as an end of itself. Rather, it becomes the means of attracting sufficient capital to allow the business to do what, from God's perspective, is it in business to do, and that is to serve its customers and employees. Can I give you a great example of this? I gave you an example last week of uh, the Ford Motor Company. And in the 70s, the Ford Motor Company made the decision financially that they would put the lives of people at risk, knowing that they would have to pay out a certain amount of money, somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 million. But if they were to fix the problem so that lives would not be put into danger, it would cost them $137 million. So knowing they would have to spend more fixing the problem than they could and just actually uh, paying the money out to those who have been damaged or killed in the process, They made the financial decision to not lose as much money. If they would have listened to their founder and their owner, they would have heard a very different mindset. Henry Ford was asked early in his career about cars. And the opportunity was there because of supply and demand. The opportunity was there for him to raise the prices and to make even more profit, to pocket even more, to become even more successful. And he said, I would rather make more cars by hiring more people, which means I will make less money. Because more people can benefit from the service and more people can have meaningful work. That's a redemptive view. A redemptive view is someone who in the world of education says it's not sufficient, it's not okay, it's not just good that people, because of an economic bracket that they live in, don't have access to get some of the tools that would be available to them. And so we have folks in our church, in our very midst, that are devoting their lives to serving the bottom 5% in the world of education. Trying to get a scalable model about how we can go about educating people, really, truly educating them, to change the trajectory of their life. And not all of those people will be believers in Jesus. Not all of those who will have the trajectory of their life changed will be those who will embrace the lordship of Christ. But the redemptive view says, I'm here to serve. I'm here to alleviate some of the effects of the fall. (laughs) It's God's job to do with them what he wants. So let me close with this. 
When you and I have a redemptive and a restorative view of work, work becomes productive. Last week we talked about the fact that it becomes fruitless and it becomes meaningless. All I'm going to do is just flip those this week because Jesus came to flip it. He came to restore it, to redeem it. So when we have a redemptive and restorative view of work, work becomes productive. The Holy Spirit cares far more about your business than you do. So would you beg God to give you insight and direction and ingenuity in, in your work? Second thing, work becomes meaningful rather than meaningless. It becomes meaningful for me primarily because of two reasons. One, because I'm partnering with God. The, the, the guy who is in charge of this is the creator of the universe itself. And so I'm partnering with him as I make wood products or as I have this particular service. It could be a cleaning service or it could be working in the, in the medical, whatever it is. Whatever it is I'm partnering in, I'm partnering with God. That brings meaning to my work. And the other part, and this is where we're going to spend our time on next week. The other part of it is, though, there is this certain level of continuity that what happens in this world right here will actually be carried on into eternity when Jesus makes his way back. He started in a garden. It was never meant to be just a garden. It was always to be a city that was being built. And there are some things right now that are happening that are being built in which God is going to bring them on into eternity. I don't know what specifically that is. There is some level of continuity and there is some level of discontinuity. That's what we'll talk about next week. That brings meaning, though, for me and work. So what do you do with this? First, to carry over from last week, just repent of your limited view of your work. Repent of the, of the self-centered nature of it. Repent of the lack of vision to partner with God to bring about the restoration of all things. Repent of that. The second thing is go back online. And if you, even if you don't go online and fill this out, do this in your own mind. Take a mental inventory of where it is that you see redemption taking place in your workplace. Where do you see God's redemption? Know that you may see his redemption not specifically attached with a believer. You may see some of his redemptive work working with those who are outside of the faith. Not every doctor is a believer. Not every special ed teacher is a believer. And God is using them. He is working. He is in his sovereign control. He is doing something to bring about restoration. The invitation from God is this, come and join me. But if you don't, I will bypass you because I will build my kingdom. I will bring restoration. Now, do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the work that they do and somehow another merits them favor with God. It doesn't give them a right relationship with God. I'm saying that they are in many ways being a part of what it is that God's called us to do. So let me close with this story. You and I are caught right now in between the time in which Jesus came. He accomplished his work. He's asked us to jump on board and to join him. And in the time in which he will come, in which everything will be made in the way that we want it to be, that we long for it to be, that we, that we hope that it will be. There, there's this time now in which it has been accomplished, and yet it has not yet fully been accomplished. The best analogy for this came from a guy, I don't know who did this originally, but Alistair McGrath is the one who made it popular. When he looked at World War II, and there was a time in which the Allied forces came and we landed on the beaches of Normandy and we fought the Germans there and we pushed them back in victory. And historians will tell you now that D-Day 
was basically the end of the war. At that point, the war was won for the Allied forces, and it was just a matter of time before all the other forces were pushed back. It was just a matter of time before they had to surrender because we were moving. We now had a beachhead. We now had an establishment. We had a place in which we were going to send in more and more and more and more soldiers until it was overwhelming. There was no way they could prevent it. But battles had to be fought. There were still things that we had, that we still had to march forward. And so here I think is what Jesus is saying. He came to the earth. He went to a cross. He accomplished salvation. He accomplished redemption. He is bringing restoration. That work was done. That was D-Day. Rebellion doesn't have a chance. It's just a matter of time. And now what God has said is, church, join me. I want to send you in mass forces. Continue to come to overwhelm, to fight individual battles. I'm going to send you all out in such mass numbers that you're going to take over and bring restoration to the whole world. It's me doing the work. It's you jumping on board with me. That's what you and I are called to right now. So when you are in this process and and, and you are searching for this, you are striving for this, and you bang your head up against the wall and what your company is saying, no, no. I'm not going to let you do that. Just remember, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time before he comes back and, and, and everything will be as it's called to be. So fight. Next week, we'll look at all that. We'll look and see what it is that God has in store for us um, for the future. And, and you'll hear a powerful story from a man in our midst who is working redemptively. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again um, for what it is that you have done. Jesus, the work that you accomplished that only you could do. Um, thank you for living a life um, that, in which we can receive your power and, and live that same kind of life. We know we'll never do it to the perfection that you did, but God, thank you that you've even given us the potential uh, to do something of eternal worth. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us along the way. Help push us forward. Um, We really do want to partner with you in the redeeming of nouns. So lead on, O King Eternal. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.